Uh, thank you for coming. It's raining, I know, and the economy has really sort of grabbed hold of every bit of everybody's attention everywhere, and uh, but we felt obligated to move on anyway and, uh, and bring this to you. Um, today, I think, if I would describe this briefing that we've put together, I would describe it this way, and that is, uh, I think what you're about to get is a report card on the health of CO2 emissions, both from the human contribution side of things and from the natural system side. In other words, uh, how are natural systems doing with respect to carbon dioxide, the main greenhouse gas, the most long-lived greenhouse gas that we'll worry about for a very long time. Um, and how are humans doing? How are we doing uh, in terms of uh, do we see any sort of headway in um, digging into the emissions problem or where are we exactly relative to uh, projected future scenarios? Anyway, Pep Canadell from uh, CSRIO, Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization in Australia is here with us today, direct from Australia. Uh, we've been talking through the internet for over a year and it finally happened, so we're glad to have him here. But he's involved in this carbon project, a, a really large sort of uh, research project aimed at getting uh, a kind of status, the health, uh, you know, year by year, how are we doing, how is nature doing uh, with the CO2 thing. And uh, he's uh, earned his degrees from uh, Barcelona, Spain, um, University Autonomous, Barcelona, Spain, University of California, San Diego, and Berkeley and Stanford University. So he's got a lot of uh, very mixed educational background, very deep. Uh, as I said, he's um, one of the uh, key players in doing this carbon project, involved in this carbon project. He's going to be our first speaker. He's going to be followed by Howard Epstein, who's here with us today from the uh, University of Virginia. He's from the Department of Environmental Sciences. He's been doing a lot of work on Arctic tundra, grasslands, and shrublands. And largely estimating the amount of carbon tied up in these soils. In other words, if we get revved up warming-wise in the Arctic, um, there's a lot of carbon laying around that's available to be oxidized and put in the atmosphere. In other words, uh, it's called a positive feedback. And so the question becomes, well, how much is there? Uh, and it's his group and others like him that are beginning to give us numbers of tons of carbon that are laying around available if things happen, things being permafrost melts, carbon becomes exposed to the atmosphere, carbon makes its way available into the atmosphere, and how does that change this, the whole climate forecasting? Um, it does change it, but there are a lot of uh, particular scenarios that could play out, so I won't uh, dig into that any longer. And so having said that, let me kick off this briefing to uh, Pep Canadell, and really glad to have you here. I noticed that the headline as of 5 o'clock last night said global warming pollution increases 3%. Guess where that number came from? This guy and his group. They did a press release last night around the world. So this is it, hot off the presses. Uh, and uh, Pep, 
Good Thank you very much, Tony, and good morning, everyone. And it's certainly a pleasure to have the opportunity here today to uh, release the the new global carbon budget. We're doing a release today, although media took it yesterday already. Um, I want to just to begin acknowledging that this is a part of. Uh, an effort that we do within the Global Carbon Project, which is one of these projects of the Earth System Science Partnership. And I want to uh, particularly acknowledge uh, all the people who actually have contributed and institutions who uh, make possible this update. And that'll be Sias uh, Conway, uh, Phil Lecare, Hutton, um, Marlin, and Rapak, uh, all in various institutions, all responsible for parts of the data sets or modeling that I'll be presenting and that we need to uh, bring together the carbon budget. So let me just uh, say what, what I'm going to be doing today. Uh, I'll just update you on the various components of the new budget. And then I'll talk about some of the drivers behind those, uh, uh, those changes in the budget. And that, that's important to us because uh, it, it kind of tells us a little about uh, some of the things that we can be looking at in terms of climate mitigation. Um, first question is, uh, why, why a budget is important? And you know, it sounds like a little academic altogether. But the, the, the carbon budget actually underpins the human perturbation of the climate system. I mean, as it stands now, 65% of the full radiative forcing uh, is coming from CO2 alone. The other thing is that the global carbon budget gives us this uh, very unique opportunity to have a global consistency check of all the quantities of both sources and sinks, which measure independently. So if, if things don't square up, uh, you know, it's an opportunity to realize that we're doing the wrong thing. And also, it starts giving us a little insights into where some of the potential leverage points for climate mitigation are. So let's start it. I mean, this is the bottom line while we're doing all these things. And the bottom line is atmospheric CO2 growth. Uh, we reached 383 parts per million in 2007. That's about 37% increase over um, the pre-industrial times. And we're mostly interested as well in understanding how quickly this carbon is growing in, in the atmosphere, how, how quickly the amount that we're dumping into the atmosphere really stays and builds up, which is the final responsible for climate change. We've been growing about 1.5 parts per million per year for about 30 years until 2000. And from 2000, we jumped almost quite abruptly, about 33%. We're about two parts per million growing very steady average since 2000 to 2007. The 2007 actually was just a little above average, 2.2 parts per million. So this is what we call, you know, the the bottom line of why we are interested in all these things. This fits straight into uh, climate change. Now let's now look at the components. First one, we'll call it the Goliath of carbon emissions, uh, is of course the emissions from the combustion of uh, fossil fuel and cement production. We reach 8.5 billion tons of carbon in 2007. And again, we're most interested in understanding the, uh, the speed at which uh, we are uh, we are uh, emitting these emissions. And so uh, the, the speed at which we're emitting, it's about 3.5% since 2000. And perhaps the most astonishing thing is the fact that we jump from about 0.9% during the 90s. Now the 90s, it was a very special decade, mostly because we saw the collapse of the all Soviet uh, Union. But the 2000s have been 
equally uh, unique in the sense that we've seen some recovery of that collapse, but most importantly, we've seen China coming at a speed no one had anticipated. You put all these things together, and in addition to, until very recently, having a really strong economic boom all across the board uh, globally, uh, we've seen what it is truly an astonishing jump from 0.9%, almost four-time you know, increase in the growth of, of uh, emissions uh, from fossil fuel. Now, last year we published this figure where we said, well, these are all the, what you see in black, and uh, you see the actual emissions uh, that, um, that we've been measuring. And all these lines are what's called the IPCC scenarios, which were the emission scenarios we developed late in the 90s as all plausible futures that we could have in terms of emissions. And the publication last year, it really said, well, we're seeing something happening here, is that you know, we, we really start kind of tracking the, the most intense uh, emission scenario, the one that is called A1FI, which is fossil fuel intensive. The one that when it was created, it was unthinkable that we could actually be tracking that. It was really a, an academic exercise that you really have to have a, a worst case scenario and a low case scenario. And of course, for almost a decade, we've been very happy to actually use B1, which is the middle ground uh, emission scenario, which we've used so many times for impact studies and even for you know informing policy developments in climate change. What we've been able to actually do now uh, for this 2007, a review, a uh, revisit of some of the data from the past and updating it to 2007. And here's what we, we are. Basically, we're just consistently and confirming that we are now tracking, well, actually not only tracking, we're slightly above the worst case scenario in terms of average emission growth um, for uh, the past almost 80 years now, since 2000. Just to put some numbers to it, these are averages, and I'm not here talking about the errors and the standard deviations, which would make a little the numbers more complicated, but it's worth looking at. For the 2000-2010 for the, the uh, period, the, the most intensive worst case scenario showed an, a, a, a growth of 2.7% per year. We are at 3.5% per year. The other thing that has happened, which has been exceptional, is the, the, the completely change of, of relevance of who is putting emissions into, into the atmosphere. This is a figure that it's showing that in 1992, when we developed the convention on climate change, the developed world, which is called here Annex B, and that's the language of the Kyoto Protocol, uh, was responsible for 62% of the emissions. And the less developing world, non-Annex B, were responsible for 38. It took us about five years to actually uh, agree on, on, on a protocol and, and really you know, adopted it. At that point, the developed world had already reduced their share, the global share of emissions, to 57%. Well, it took us seven years to actually get this Kyoto Protocol into, into force. 
Um, and at that point, all those basically fundamental ideas that inspire you know, what the Kyoto Protocol should and should not do and who should take responsibility and who should not have com you know, completely vanished. It was no longer 62% as at the beginning of 1992 responsible for the emissions. It was basically now the same. Well, we just kind of flip over now. We currently have more emissions now coming from less developing countries than those from developed world who currently in the current Kyoto Protocol um, um, have some responsibility. Whether they have taken this responsibility or not, this is another matter. Even kind of interesting is looking at the top emitters. The top emitters we know can confirm certainly that China took over uh, the U.S. as the top emitter in the world anywhere between 2006-2007. And so China first, U.S. second, Russia third, where Russia is about to be taken over this year by India. So look at the configuration we're having now. China, US, India, and Russia, and I'll be actually going back to this list later on, Japan is fifth. Now, I've been kind of showing this dramatic shift on you know, who is contributing the most and how this thing has influenced the way we thought about the Kyoto Protocol and the negotiations, international negotiations up to this point and how this thing really has to be revisited you know, dramatically quickly. But I cannot skip to say that climate change, it is a cumulative problem. And so it's not that we have a climate change problem because we're emitting such amount of of CO2 today, we have a climate change problem because we've been accumulating for hundreds of years you know, CO2 from human activities. So I'm just going to look at a little some historical contributions. In this first column, what we have is the population in 2004 as case uh, reference uh, year. So, and, and you see that about 20% uh, of the world are the developed, uh, the developed countries, which are responsible for 20%, for 80% of the historical accumulations of CO2. So we talk about this thing every time that there's an international negotiations and developed world talks to the less developing world, and of course, less developing world makes sure that you know, we all understand that you know, even if they may be emitting a lot now, uh, there's still, from a climate perspective, the responsibility is somewhere else. It's also very informative to actually understand the current fluxes we just talked about a second ago. I'm just showing here, again, reference year for 2004. And of course, you know, US and Europe, they, they, they've been really important, uh, but still less important, but still important. You know, we see like a growing China in terms of the total, the, the amount, the absolute flux going into the atmosphere from that region. And then we see, of course, the developing countries, you know, quite substantially, but just remember that there's 100, 100 plus countries there, all in that little box which is growing. So, you know, per country or per capita, we're still looking at a very small thing. And then what you want to pay attention is actually who is growing the fastest. And that's an indication of what you may be seeing happening in the near future. And of course, we know what really happens is that currently we have 60% of all growth just coming from China. And of course, the growth uh, attributed to the developed world and particularly European US is, is just shrinking. You know, we have a more uh, a small growth, if even all growth, in some countries in the developed world. Now to the question is, you know, how much of an impact we're going to see now from all this economic turmoil. So you need to look at 
you know, that you're going to be influencing, uh, you're going to be influencing the, the flux. So these amount here, if, if we're talking about the U.S. as an example, and then you are going to, you know, put this thing in perspective with how much of a contribution to the overall uh, growth uh, you're having. So I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that we'll see certainly. Uh, will see certainly an effect on emissions, but probably at a global scale, particularly looking at present state 2008, it will be relatively small. Perhaps the most, uh, most astonishing part of this graph is, is exactly what you don't see in this graph. And so what you don't see in this graph is about 800 million people in the most, in the poorest countries in the world, which are responsible for less than 1% of all CO2 uh, emissions, cumulative, uh, uh, current growth, everything. And we know that they're certainly the most vulnerable to climate change. So all these things are, are fundamental to you know, any negotiations we, we, we want to put in place uh, in which uh, a, a broad, um, a broad uh, group of, of countries, both from developing and less developing countries, you know, have to agree. So issues of equity uh, you know, are, are fundamental to, to what we're seeing. All right, so I talked about the biggest component of uh, emissions from human activities, but we have a second component. It's a second component that is shrinking uh, more and more because uh, the fact that fossil fuels are growing so quickly, but that is emissions from deforestation. And so, uh, I specifically we call it emissions from land use change, which is the difference between emissions from deforestation and uptake from reforestation. There's a lot of reforestation out there. And so, the data we have is to 2005. We really, there's not a let's say, uh, a system that we, we, we have in place nowadays to really track this thing annually, and we still um, um, refer back to the FAO data on, on deforestation. So it's to 2005, there's a trend of 1.5 um, uh, petagrams total per year, so we're just being extended this 1.5. It's a trend that has been there for the last 20 years, so it's reasonable to understand that at the very least we still have 1.5 coming uh, every year. And then we have uh, um, Southeast Asia and uh, Central and South America 0.6, 0.6 each one, and about 0.3 petagrams uh, for uh, Africa. So the, the total emissions from deforestation to the total anthropogenic emissions is about 16% now. Uh, it was much bigger before. The amount hasn't changed much over the last uh, 40 years. It's, it's just which regions have been more important or less important. And I just want to show you this graph because if you look at Africa, what it shows is that we have 13 million hectares of deforestation every year. And so tropical Africa is actually um, responsible for about 35% uh, 35, 35 of it, but only 17% of the total emissions. And that's because there's quite a bit of deforestation in what we call dry uh, tropical forests. So the carbon densities are smaller, so when you cut them, you make less of a difference. But of course, it has massive implications in, on, on biodiversity conservation. So you put together um, land use change emissions and fossil fuel emissions, and we um, gave the great uh, pollution gift to the atmosphere in 2007 of 10 billion tons of CO2. First time that we reached this mark of 10 billion tons of um, 
carbon coming from uh, human activities. All right, where all these uh, emissions are, are going? So 1.5 from deforestation, average 7.5 for the period 2000 to 2007. So they're going 46% into the ocean, I'm sorry, into the atmosphere. 29% in taken by uh, forests and vegetation around the world. These are all averages. And 26% uh, into the oceans, average to during the period 2000 to 2007. We have an ocean sink, which is relatively stable. We have an extremely moody uh, um, sink on land. And we have some years having a huge sink capable to uptake net one third of the all anthropogenic emissions. We have another year, which uh, we are net emitters because there's been an El Nino year with a lot of fires or so, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> natural CO2 sinks observe 55% of all emissions. So you could actually look at this thing as, well, we got a 55% discount on climate change. That's pretty good. We hope that it lasts. Or you can actually look at this 55% emission uptake by natural sinks as probably the biggest subsidy in our global economy, uh, you know, for climate change uh, mitigation that is you calculate this thing with what you would need to spend uh, by using the emission trading in Europe, you would be spending every single year half a trillion dollars at the very least. Of course, we cannot trade this, this thing for cash, unfortunately. And uh, uh, even if we could, uh, it's not that we can manage this thing. But the important thing is that what this thing is going to be doing into the future, it, it is like the, the fundamental component and question that we have. Are we going to have a 55% discount in the next 20 years? Are we going to have a bigger discount? Or are we going to have less of a discount? And even if we insist, we cannot do a lot of things with this discount, we can actually ad adapt to look into mitigation options, which may take more advantage when those things are, are biggest and maybe trying to do less. 50 years ago, 400 kilos stayed into the atmosphere and 60% you know, was removed by the natural sinks. Nowadays, that same ton that you put into the atmosphere, 450 stay into the atmosphere. So the sinks are a little less efficient, only 5% less efficient, but of course, 5% less efficient out of 10 billion tons, it's not an insignificant amount of carbon that now stays more in the atmosphere than before. Now, having said that, I want to say that natural things are an amazing thing of nature, really working towards you know, saving planet Earth. Uh, just remember that 50 years ago, we were putting about two, 2 billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere. And sure enough, natural things removed almost 50%. 50 years later, we're dumping 20, 10 billion tons of carbon. And sure enough, natural things are still removing almost half of that amount. We're just detecting a little shift here with these 5% and insist it's not insignificant. Actually, it is important. The land fraction. So you see a pretty flat line with the land fraction. It is actually really difficult. Um, look at the, the swings up and down, up and down of the land fraction. So as I said before, you have one year that um, the, the, the land is, is, is removing net about three, even more, you know, three, four 
um, a billion tons of carbon, you know, more than a third of the entire anthropogenic emissions, and the following year we may have a massive El Nino year, and we may be putting net, you know, like the equivalent of three. So we've done a lot of cleaning of these data, trying to remove, you know, El Nino uh, uh, effects, trying to remove volcanic effects, and here's the best we can offer. It's a pretty flat line. Uh, of course, that's not the last word, but that's that's where we are at this point. When we move into the ocean fraction, it's a little different. So we do see a little of a decline, and so that that is uh, the ocean as a whole is is taking a little less. The efficiency is becoming a little down, and we are. Uh, this is like a, an attempt of a synthesis we're just working now, Corinne um, Lacare. And so, what we're seeing is that the biggest issue at this point, really, we're looking into the Southern Ocean. So, the Southern Ocean, there is a link now, a well-established but not unquestionable, of course, uh, between. Incre increased global warming and the ozone hole with increased winds, which they push surface water and allow some of the, the CO2 rich deep water in the Southern Ocean to actually surface, exchange with the atmosphere, and therefore the net balance of a sink as it is, plus this uh, exchange of, of rich CO2 waters from deep uh, ocean, uh, it results with a, a kind of a less of a sink that you would expect given the CO2 in the atmosphere. There's still sinks and they're still growing, but they're just growing slower than the growth in the atmospheric uh, CO2. All right, so I put everything together now. And so the C uh, on the top sources, there's be like the deforestation. Uh, just look at the extra tropics, you know, the temperate world finished in the 80s. Uh, you know, there was no much uh, deforestation really happening there. And then it took the tropical one and it really moved much faster and bigger in terms of contribution, mostly because when you cut a tree from the tropics, you make much of a bigger difference in terms of carbon that goes into the atmosphere than if you cut a tree, you know, somewhere outside here. Uh, we have 7.5 average um, billion tons of carbon coming from. Uh, fossil fuel um, emissions, and then you need to take all these emissions and put them you know, somewhere else. This is what we call the perturbation. All the uh, extra CO2 has to go somewhere. 4.2 billion tons stays into the atmosphere. 2.3 uh, goes into the ocean, and 2.C uh, is uh, uptake by um, vegetation. All right, so just moving here to the last part of my talk, um, I'll just say a few things on, on drivers, and I'll just talk about two, two main types of drivers, the drivers from fossil fuel emissions, and then drivers of the overall uh, atmospheric um, CO2 growth. So again, these, these are the emissions, the observed emissions. The analysis is, uh, stops at uh, 2004, and I, I want to show you why I want to stop at 2004, and later I'll show you uh, a more recent analysis we've done. But basically, it just keeps going up, as we know. And then the the the, the number one um, the number one driver, you know, is fundamentally population. You can it's it's a, a linear one to one um, emissions population. You could almost have 
being able to predict where we're going to be with emission just by looking at you know the growth of of population. Now we have another factor which is actually pushing at the same intensity at the same level also linearly, which is the growth on wealth, uh, individual wealth, the, the GDP per capita. So these two forces are pushing those emissions to be basically double than what you see here. But we have a third force on the opposite direction. And this is what we call the carbon intensity of the global economy, which is how much grams, how many car, uh, grams of carbon we emit per one dollar of wealth produced. And we have this beautiful trend for the last 100 years of improving the carbon intensity, that is declining the carbon intensity. You just want to point out that for, during 2003, 2004, and 2005, this decline, which was a centenary decline, almost stopped. The figure I'm show is even going a little up, but with all the uncertainties, basically I stopped improving. And that was primary because we saw so much wealth coming into the, into the world's economy from a part of the world where uh, the energy systems were really carbon intense, and that was, of course, China. But it, it's, it's remarkable that actually we can pick up these things globally now. And as I said, it lasted and it was really strong for 2003, 4, and 5. Since then, things are kind of moving a little back to where they were, not quite as, as the same trend, but you no longer see the complete stagnation. You see a little coming down. And again, partially because um, China has improved 2006 and 2007, their energy efficiency. All right, so we, I show you this figure, and now we're gonna um, take the figure and, and break it apart into various regions. So I'm just gonna be walking you through different regions with the same type of um, uh, figure uh, where you see in red population, uh, black, the carbon emissions, the kind of orangey uh, wealth per capita, and then the, the blue, so okay, so black, okay, the colors are not clear. Population going up, uh, the thick black uh, of emissions going up, the wealth per capita going even farther up, and then you have the carbon intensity coming down. So this is a classic figure, you know, the US, you know, very strong continuous decline of um, the carbon intensity, improving, you know, the carbon energy of the system. You see that wealth per capita in the last few years is becoming more important than the actual population growth. And that's a trend now that we are picking up globally. And we think that, of course, you know, that will become you know, one of the much more powerful force than just population, despite population needs to continue, well, not need, sorry, uh, will continue you know, for, you know, to at least three, three more billion people over this century. Um, so um, the next one is uh, EU, EU, which is the 15 all EU, and Japan. And look at uh, how interesting EU, how flat uh, this, uh, this curve is of, of emission growth, and how also intense the uh, Jap Japanese uh, emission growth is as well, more similar to uh, the one of uh, the US. What's perhaps more remarkable in this figure is the fact that the carbon intensity of Japan, 
the blue line, hasn't really improved for the last 10 years. By the way, the years here are 1980 to 2004. So it hasn't really uh, improved much. And so what's happening here is that what I just shown now here in blue is the, the, the carbon intensity of these various countries. So you have that to create a, a, wealth, um, a dollar of wealth in the US, you're going to be emitting about 200 grams of carbon. But the Japanese produce uh, one dollar wealth with a third of that carbon emission. And Europeans are somewhere in between. So I think that what we believe is happening in the Japanese end is that they're really at the bottom of how how energy efficiency you can actually become in producing uh, wealth, and that the next step for particularly Japan is really moving into uh, full-fledged non-CO2 energy uh, sources uh, more than trying to do uh, or, or to kind of tamper more with, with energy efficiencies. And as I said, EU is somewhere in between. Then developing countries and the former Soviet Union, and look at the, the collapse, of course, we know this thing, there's no news, uh, the collapse of, of emissions, the collapse of everything on intensity, wealth per capita, everything that really took place in the, in the, in the 90s. And then you have the wild cards. You know, basically you have China and India really exponentially growing. Now it's really important that you understand these figures. These figures are all relative to one. They have no information about the absolute value of all these trends, but they just show the relative trend to everybody else. And it shows that you know you may have a EU which is quite a stagnant with uh, uh, overall fossil fuel emissions and you have fundamentally an acceleration exponential you know through the roof you know with with China and India following again the absolute values are tremendously different and it, they're not being shown here and then you have developing countries and, and least developed countries. And again, least developed countries, they come really from the bottom in terms of, of wealth and per capita. And so, you know, it, it looks a steep, it is a steep, but still it's a small effect. Now, I'm going back to that list that I showed you before of the top emitters. And here I already put the top emitters for 2008. So what's going to happen at the end of this year. And so you have China, US, India, Russia, and Japan. And just let me just say two words about each of these countries, with some risk, of course, <laughs> of saying anything. But um, here you have the new top emitters in, 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 a, in the international you know, efforts of really trying to curve um, um, carbon emissions and, and really develop a trajectory for stabilization of CO2. China has said very clearly that it's not going to take any uh, carbon emission cut targets. They may be looking at some of the efficiencies, energy efficiencies, but of course energy efficiency, it is a, a requirement to do better, but of course it doesn't translate necessarily into um, you know, reduction in emissions at all. Um, you have second US, which hasn't made completely or very clear, you know, what's its position uh, with climate change, certainly from an international point of view. You have India, who had said very clear, you know, we're not taking any uh, emission cuts, uh, any commitments to cut any type of emissions. We need to really move have a billion people out of poverty and you know it's going to take us decades to do that and I think that probably rightly so. You have Russia which is moving out of a massive collapse, economic collapse and I didn't show it but actually Russia if I said that uh, US has about 200 grams 
of carbon per dollar, develop, uh, per dollar of wealth, Russia has about 400 grams. It's doubled in the US because the, the energy system is so old. And of course, this thing will be renovated, but we're going to see a lot of increase of wealth still built upon that older, uh, older and more carbon intense system. Um, and of course, heavily fossil fuel. And then you have uh, Japan. And I think that Japan, as I said, for Japan is really becoming tough to, to really do more improvements. They are really at the bottom of, of the world in terms of uh, how efficient they are at the bottom. It means the top. Uh, at the top of how efficient you can be with energy systems and producing wealth. So for them, it will be extremely tough because this is truly moving to a whole different paradigm of, 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 of energy systems with you know, no CO2. And my uh, last uh, slide uh, will try to bring out all together, and all together is all the human and biophysical drivers to really understand uh, what's really driving this atmospheric CO2 growth that we're seeing. So what I'm presenting here is, is um, an, an analysis uh, led by Mark Rapak, uh, which basically we, we look at population, per capita income, carbon intensity, and the decline in efficiency of carbon sinks, all put together for the period 1950-2006. And so what we see is that um, out of the 1.9% growth that we have on atmospheric CO2, that's the average for the whole period, population growth is, is responsible for 1.7 of that 1.9. Per capita income adds an additional 1.8%. Carbon intensity moves down 1.7%. Uh, and the, the loss of efficiency of our carbon sinks up to now, for the last 50 plus years, uh, is adding 0.2% of this 1.9% uh, uh, growth that we've seen for the last 60 years. And if you were to decide to halve emissions in 35 years time from now, you would need to actually reduce emissions by about 2% every year, starting now. And that's taking into account the, the same energy intensity and population trends we've seen over the last 50 years. And just to translate this into carbon uh, intensity decrease, uh, you would need a minus 5% or you know, a decrease 5% per year to achieve that. And that is three times what's you could call the business as usual trend, which has been remarkable over many years, but you would need to actually increase this thing by, by three times. So to conclude, uh, since 2000, anthropogenic CO2 emissions have been growing four times faster than in the 90s and above the worst case scenario of the Intergovernmental Panel uh, for Climate Change. There has been a complete shift in the share of regional emissions, now more than half of the fossil fuel emissions are coming from developing countries. And despite 50 years of intense international negotiations, atmospheric CO2 growth has been growing 33% faster during the last 80 years when compared to the 1990s. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. The next uh, two presentations that you're going to hear will focus 
on the north and on uh, regions of the Earth that are uh, dominated by Arctic systems, Arctic tundra, and underlain by, um, by frozen ground. I'm going to talk to you about some new estimates of carbon that's, that is stored in Arctic tundra and in permafrost soils. So the first thing that, that we should do is we should take a view from the, the top. Um, I don't know if, any, if uh, many of you have taken a look at the globe from above the North Pole, but uh, this is what the Arctic Ocean and the uh, land mass looks like. Uh, the region there that is, uh, is colored is the Arctic tundra. Uh, we define the, the tundra as being treeless. It is not absent of woody plants, though. There are lots of woody plants. There are uh, sh shrubs, lots of shrub species in the Arctic tundra, but no trees. That's how we define it. Uh, we see large expansions, expanses of, uh, of tundra in Russia and in Canada and then other regions of tundra in the United States and also in uh, Scandinavia and in Greenland at the, uh, at the edges uh, off of the Greenland ice sheet. Uh, you should note that the, that the tundra region is in uh, close proximity to uh, the Arctic Ocean, so it's, so it's either uh, perennially or seasonally frozen water. So it's very uh, strongly influenced by the uh, sea ice dynamics that we are seeing there. Uh, approximately 13% of the Earth's land area is Arctic tundra. I'll, I'll focus now on uh, the tundra uh, region of North America. And uh, we split the tundra into different uh, subzones. We have subzone E, which is the warmest and most southern of the tundra zones, and go up to subzone A, which we also call the polar desert, which is the most uh, northern and uh, coldest region of, uh, of tundra. Uh, what's interesting to note is that if you want to get to the high Arctic, uh, you really need to leave uh, the United States. Okay? Alaska basically gets you uh, just into the center of the Arctic tundra. In North America, um, most of the Arctic tundra is, in the, is on the Canadian archipelago. I'll just give you a tour of, of some of the different tundra subzones to give you an idea of what they, of what they look like. Um, the, the tundra in the southernmost uh, subzone, subzone E, we call it the low Arctic tundra, uh, it's pretty lush. It has a lot of vegetation. It has 100% vegetation cover. It is dominated by some shrubs that are quite tall. They can be a meter tall. They can be a meter to two meters tall. If we move uh, a little bit further north, it may start to look a, a more like what you might expect from Arctic tundra, but still there's 100% or close to 100% of vegetation cover on the ground. There's still a lot of shrubs in there, although they're much shorter and they're a little bit more difficult to see. These uh, regions in subzone D, also part of the low Arctic, they look a lot like prairie of Montana or Wyoming that you might see in the western U.S. Now we go a little bit further, we get into subzone C, which is effectively the center of the, the, the tundra, the middle of the tundra, and it starts to uh, look more uh, barren, or what you might expect. There is a lot more bare ground. There is a much shorter vegetation, although you still see woody plants. There are still shrubs that are now growing um, much closer to the ground to try to capitalize on the, on the warmth of the, of the surface. You see in subzone C, we see um, a lot of patterned features that are quite 
common in Arctic tundra and they occur in, uh, in permafrost regions and in also in, in areas where the, the top layer of the soil will freeze and thaw every, every year and they become uh, very dominant in the center of the tundra. Going even further north, uh, we move into a, a, a region that uh, we call the High Arctic. And in the High Arctic, it is, uh, it's quite uh, barren. You have a mix of, of barren ground and vegetation. Uh, you also see a lot of, uh, of pattern ground features that are caused by the freezing and thawing of, so of soils every year. And surprisingly, there's, well, maybe not, but there's, there's still quite a bit of vegetation in, uh, in the high Arctic and there are shrubs, there are woody plants that still exist there. There are two species of uh, shrubs. One is uh, evergreen and one is deciduous that still make it in subzone B up, uh, up about 75 degrees um, north latitude. Even further, uh, we get to subzone A, which is the, we also call it the polar desert. It's still plenty of vegetation up there uh, mixed in with the bare ground. And uh, we define the polar desert as finally the, uh, having the uh, absence of, of woody plants. Um, you, it might be hard to see, but those yellow flowers up here are poppies that uh, seem to grow very well at this uh, polar desert site um, on Elephringus Island in Canada. Okay, um, to uh, give you a few definitions, the, the Arctic tundra is underlain by uh, continuous permafrost. Uh, permafrost is, is permanently frozen ground, and uh, Vladimir Romanovsky will talk to you in more uh, depth about uh, permafrost. Um, the permafrost region, as I'll explain later, it extends beyond uh, the Arctic tundra biome, quite a bit beyond the Arctic tundra biome. You get regions of continuous permafrost, discontinuous permafrost as well. Um, another term that, that I should uh, define is the active layer. Okay, the active layer is the ground that is between the surface and the top of the permafrost, and that is the layer that thaws every summer and then refreezes in the winter. The active layer can range from tens of centimeters to, uh, to uh, several meters in depth. Uh, the big carbon story in the Arctic tundra is below ground, particularly where you find dense vegetation. These two uh, soil cores here were taken uh, very close to each other. One is underneath uh, uh, vegetation, the other was unvegetated, and you see that the soil core under the vegetation developed a thick, rich, 20 centimeter organic layer of, uh, of, of dead organic carbon. But um, our estimates of the amount of, our, of carbon that's stored in Arctic tundra soils have been made in the past typically from, from relatively shallow samples. And we know now that there's a lot of carbon that is stored at depth in these soils. Uh, a new uh, paper that recently came out in Nature, the lead author is Chen Luping, um, examined the stocks of soil organic carbon in the North American region and found that they were substantially higher than we had estimated in the past. If you look at this uh, soil profile here that is dug down to a meter, you see the top 50 centimeters is probably the active layer that's thawed. And you see some pockets of dark 
blackish material that is carbon. But below 50 centimeters, this is where the permafrost is. And you also see quite a bit of dark material of, of uh, organic carbon stored in the permafrost. This is a photograph of, of uh, Chen Luping and uh, Corinne Munger, who's a graduate student, uh, digging a soil pit at Isaacson, which is the polar desert site. Uh, their their um, methods is to always dig to a meter, so they would uh, use shovels to get down to the permafrost, and then a jackhammer to get through the permafrost down to a meter. Uh, depth, in many cases, the permafrost can include up to or, or greater than 50, uh, 50 centimeters of depth. So this, is, uh, this methodology goes beyond what traditional studies have done. They had 138 sample sites in the North American Arctic tundra. Uh, a number of these sites are distributed throughout northern Alaska, but there are also quite a few sites uh, in northern Canada and the Canadian archipelago. And uh, what this study found is that there was substantial carbon that is sequestered at depth because of processes that are, uh, that are um, uh, categorized as cryoturbation. Cryoturbation is a disturbance of, uh, that is um, caused by the annual freezing and thawing of soil. So the fact that these soils thaw every summer and then freeze again every winter moves carbon around. And we have found that uh, this process actually moves carbon from the active layer down uh, to depth to potentially be stored in, in the permafrost or exist at the, at the base of the active layer. Here we see a carbon-rich layer that is right at the base of the active layer or the top of the permafrost. So estimates are 21.7 kilograms of organic carbon per square meter in the active layer, but another 13.1 kilograms of organic carbon uh, per square meter in permafrost for a total of 34.8. Uh, these estimates are approximately 40% greater than the estimates that have been cited for a long period of time, which are from a, a post-it-all paper in 1992. Um, so it is, it, it's quite a bit more carbon than, than we've been using as our estimates in the past. And 38% of this carbon was, uh, was found in the, in the permafrost. Okay, so to put this in some kind of a perspective, we can take a look at the global carbon budget. Uh, some of the numbers up there have just recently been updated uh, with, uh, by uh, Pep Canadell's talk. The, the, the Ping and All paper estimates 98.2 gigatons of carbon in the North American tundra. Uh, a gigaton is equivalent to a petagram or a billion metric tons, so they're all the same. It's 10 to the 15 grams. If we make a rough estimate extrapolating that to the entire Arctic tundra, we get about 160 gigatons of carbon in um, the top meter of Arctic tundra soils. There's approximately 1,200 to 1,500 gigatons of carbon in the upper meter of soils globally. So we're looking at about 10 to 15% of the uh, carbon in Arctic tundra um, relative to the global carbon. Only 2.5% of this carbon pool is equivalent to the annual increase in atmospheric carbon uh, dioxide, which is uh, 4.2 gigatons per year. <laughs> 
Okay, so now let, let's look at an even greater region. Let's look at the entire uh, permafrost region. The northern permafrost region extends well beyond the Arctic tundra. This is, the, this is the area of continuous permafrost, and it's much larger than the region that I've just described to you. It's approximately three to four times the size of the, of the Arctic tundra biome. Uh, another new paper that appeared in Bioscience, uh, Sure et al., uh, gives an estimate that the organic carbon content in all the permafrost soils to three meters depth is 1,024 gigatons of carbon. Now the amount of carbon that is presently in our atmosphere is just over 750 gigatons of carbon. So this is 30 to 35 percent more carbon than is presently in our atmosphere. So this is a huge pool of carbon that we are talking about. Only 0.4 percent of this pool of carbon is equivalent to the annual increase in, in atmospheric carbon dioxide. Okay, so what are some of the implications? What, what might uh, happen with this large pool of, of carbon that is in tundra and permafrost region soils. Uh, well, we know that warming will increase the decomposition of this organic material, so it will increase the flux of carbon from the dead organic carbon pool into the atmosphere. It will be released as, uh, as carbon dioxide in the decomposition process. This is an exponential relationship with the carbon dioxide influx, carbon dioxide flux from the soils increasing with increasing uh, soil temperatures. About 4% uh, of, the, of the soil organic carbon globally is, de is decomposed each year and is emitted as carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. This uh, emission in uh, some ways is balanced by uh, photosynthesis, which will bring carbon dioxide into the uh, terrestrial uh, and aquatic systems. Um, Permafrost melting uh, would expose previously frozen dead organic matter to decomposers. 6.7% um, of the tundra permafrost carbon pool is equivalent to the annual increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide. Um, but there are other things that are going on in the Arctic. We have observed an increase in tundra vegetation over the past several decades. Uh, these are repeat photographs. The top one is from 1950, the bottom one is from 2002. It's a little bit difficult to see, but they do, they show an increase in shrub extent uh, and shrub abundance in Arctic tundra, and this is something that has been observed in uh, several regions, several areas of the Arctic tundra. So this is a process that would sequester carbon dioxide, that would take carbon dioxide from uh, the atmosphere and put it into the vegetation. The vegetation has other effects on the system as well. The, probably the, uh, one of the important effects of vegetation is it acts as an insulation uh, to, the, um, to the soils. So if you increase the vegetation, you increase the insulation of the soil, and your, it, it would lead to warmer winter soil temperatures and cooler summer soil temperatures. So an increase in the vegetation would cool, could cool summer temperatures substantially, but also increase winter temperatures as well. So it might have a positive effect on uh, decomposition in the winter, a negative effect on decomposition in the, in the summer. Drying of tundra soils can also uh, be important for carbon cycling. Uh, drying of, of tundra soils could potentially switch 
the systems from uh, a sink of carbon dioxide, taking in carbon dioxide, to a source of carbon dioxide, emitting carbon, uh, carbon dioxide. These are just comparing two different three different tundra systems um, in varying moisture content. The bottom line here is a wet tundra system that is acting as a sink of carbon dioxide, taking in more carbon dioxide than it's giving off. The dry system is this line at top, at the top, and that is acting as a source of carbon dioxide, putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere um, than, it's, uh, than it's taking up. So there are a, a variety of processes that will affect carbon dioxide in tundra soils and in permafrost soils. However, the, the Schur et al. paper uh, suggests that the other processes do not appear to be able to compensate for the carbon release from thawing permafrost, uh, making it likely that the net effect of widespread permafrost thawing will lead to carbon dioxide emissions to the atmosphere and potential positive feedback for warming, for warming of climate. The pool of carbon dioxide, um, the pool of carbon in tundra and permafrost soils is so large that it is uh, a difficult one to ignore and only small changes in this pool will lead to larger changes uh, elsewhere. Estimates of carbon release from melting permafrost uh, range from uh, half to a gigaton of carbon per year over the next century, so 50 to 100 gigatons of carbon over that time, which translates roughly to an additional 25 or 50 parts per million of carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, we have an uncertain future for soil carbon. This is another uh, small, uh, short paper that appeared recently in Science. Uh, most of the concern associated with soil carbon response to global change involves organic carbon stocks that can change over decades to centuries. Okay, these are the exact carbon stocks that we are talking about that are, are um, uh, potentially tied up in, uh, in permafrost or that exist in a, um, in a cold arctic tundra and could potentially respond to changes in the environment in those regions. Okay, and uh, I will give it to Vlad Romanovsky who will tell you more about permafrost. Uh, thank you very much for <clears throat> inviting me uh, here and uh, thank you for coming. So um, I will talk about uh, permafrost and uh, will give you some uh, brief information what it is and how it changes and how it could be important, changes in permafrost could be important for carbon cycle. Uh, and uh, work what uh, I will uh, describe here is a result of work of a group of, of scientists at the uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks and also other, our colleagues in uh, not only the United States but also in other parts of the world, including Russia, Mongolia, and other uh, places where permafrost exists. Uh, so first, uh, definition. Uh, well, uh, permafrost define the most common definition defined on the uh, base of, basis of temperature. So the, the formal definition is that any uh, rock, soil, any earth material except for glacial ice, uh, which is at or below zero degrees Celsius uh, for two or more years, it is permafrost. 
So two things here. So temperature below temperature, it's one thing. And second, very important, it has to be below zero degrees Celsius or at zero for two or more years. So uh, according to this definition, of, of course, active layer is not part of uh, permafrost, but everything below, if it's not thawing in the summer or two summers, it's already permafrost. So now, if we look at the map here, which uh, shows permafrost extent, uh, yeah, unfortunately colors are not that great in this projector, but um, uh, permafrost concentrates in uh, higher latitudes. And uh, there is an area of continuous permafrost where you will find permafrost practically everywhere, except maybe under uh, deep lakes and big rivers. And then discontinuous permafrost zone south from that, uh, which permafrost and non-permafrost uh, exist together. But uh, both continuous and discontinuous permafrost concentrates in the northern hemisphere in the high latitudes. So permafrost is a product of cold climates. And because of that, uh, changes in, climates, in climate will definitely lead to changes in permafrost. And, and usually permafrost reacts very quickly in, in changes in, to changes in climate uh, in terms of temperature. So with warmer climate, which we see right now, uh, permafrost uh, getting warmer pretty quickly. However, to change extent of permafrost or thickness of permafrost is much more longer process. It takes much long, longer time. It will react, it reacts to the changes in climate and I will show in my presentation uh, but it's, it does uh, slower. It's much slower process than, than changes in, in, in atmosphere. So the permafrost is, uh, uh, ranges from uh, very warm, zero degrees Celsius in the southern limits of permafrost to minus 15 and colder degrees Celsius uh, in the higher Arctic. And uh, in terms of thickness of permafrost, it starts from several uh, less than meter and up to 1,500 meters of depth in the central uh, East Siberia. So the, the range is huge, uh, and the age of permafrost is also very different, from several years to many millions of years. So in uh, uh, my presentation, I will uh, uh, try to emphasize on, on uh, relationship between uh, permafrost and, and carbon. So, and there's uh, three major uh, pools of carbon sequestered in permafrost. The first one, what uh, Harvey was uh, described just uh, uh, in the previous talk, is the, the most dynamic one in the upper one to three meters of permafrost. And to uh, accumulate this carbon in this, uh, in this pool, it takes just uh, tens to hundreds to thousands of years. And to release it to the atmosphere, it will take uh, maybe tens of, or uh, years or hundreds of years. So it's a very dynamic part. And that was, was uh, mostly how I was talking about. I will uh, spend more time on two uh, other pools in permafrost. One of them, uh, carbon which sequestered in deeper permafrost from several to 40 meters in permafrost, which uh, uh, takes uh, already uh, thousands of years and sometimes tens of thousands of years to sequester and also it takes longer from uh, many decades to centuries or maybe millennia to release into the atmosphere. And I will also briefly mention another pool uh, of carbon which uh, we know much less about 
which related to gas hydrates or methane clathrates, which are in, uh, in a lower part of permafrost and thick permafrost or right beneath the permafrost. Uh, we know much less about it, but it could be potentially very important for uh, what we are talking today uh, about the uh, relationship between changes uh, in climate and permafrost. For this uh, cloth rates, it's already uh, time limits are much longer. So to accumulate takes uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, and to release it, at least uh, thousands of years. So it's a little bit different uh, creature, but I will mention about it when I will, will talk about it. Okay, so to understand how this deep carbon uh, got into the permafrost and uh, what is uh, the present state of permafrost, we have to go back a little bit and look how recent permafrost formed. And uh, uh, the most important time to look at it will be last glacial, interglacial uh, cycle, or last 100,000 years. So if you look at the um, maximum of last glaciation about 20,000 years ago, and I use as an example uh, the area of the former Soviet Union, uh, first because uh, there's uh, lots of data on paleopermafrost available from there, and also because it, the area uh, mostly not covered by uh, big ice sheets during the last glaciation. So that's very important because North America was mostly covered with um, glacier, uh, ice sheet, but uh, only Alaska and Yukon and some part of uh, northwest of Canada was not. Uh, so uh, as an example, we will look uh, how permafrost changed during this, uh, starting from there and up to present time. So during the, this time, the coldest time, uh, temperature was, uh, terrestrial temperature was uh, at least 10 degrees colder generally than it is right now. Uh, and permafrost, of course, was developing very actively, and not only on present-day land, but also, also because of the sea level was about 120 meters uh, lower than it is right now, all Arctic shells were land, and permafrost was actively growing on this land, on these uh, open shells, and uh, during long period of time, several tens of thousands of years, very thick permafrost formed on, on uh, uh, present-day shells. So the extent of permafrost was uh, much more significant than it is right now. Uh, part of Europe was uh, covered by, by permafrost. Uh, most of the uh, European part of Russia was uh, permafrost. And then southern limits of permafrost went down to uh, Ch northern China or practically Mongolia and permafrost and so on. So the, the extent of permafrost was huge. So uh, also important to note uh, for our especially topic, what kind of environment it was. It was uh, treeless, um, this area, treeless environment, uh, which is, there's no analogy right now. It's not present day tundra. It actually grass tundra, or even better to say, uh, steppe uh, type of environment. With very high grasses, very productive uh, uh, environment, pr very productive ecosystems. And uh, uh, the area of this uh, step, so-called mammoth step uh, environment was uh, the area that covered practically all permafrost area uh, uh, that time. And uh, what is important, uh, that productivity was very high and also because there was no trees and uh, um, uh, open spaces, lots of wind and uh, sources of, of sediments, 
there was also a very high rate of sedimentation. So the productivity and sedimentation is very key points to, uh, uh, to understand how that carbon was accumulated in, in the permafrost. And uh, to, there's uh, some proof that uh, this ecosystem was really productive uh, existence uh, it's really dark a little bit, but existence of uh, um, many uh, species of big grazers like mammoth, uh, bisons, uh, horses, and others uh, in, this, in these environments. Uh, they could actually feed on, on this very productive ecosystem. And uh, with um, uh, productivity and high rate of sedimentation, what happened really, very thick layer of sediments at some places more than 50 meters in thickness and on average about 20 meters of thickness were formed during that period of time, during several uh, tens of thousands of years. And uh, what is, uh, and this is kind of cross section of these sediments, uh, two features very important for us. First, very significant amount of ice was accumulated in this, uh, in this layer because of the very harsh environment and there is some uh, a very good uh, explanation how this ice got into it. If you have questions, I will explain later. Uh, and a, a second very important point, that because of high productivity and high sedimentation rate, lots of uh, remnants of uh, grasses, roots, even stems, and sometimes even leaves, were deposited and frozen almost immediately after deposition. And since then, uh, this uh, layer was never been uh, thawed, so it was frozen since that period of time till now. So this is very important. Lots of ice and lots of carbon, which is in form, actually very easy to decompose. So that's characteristic of this, of this layer, which developed um, during that period of time in a huge part of the area of permafrost distribution. So now this uh, uh, transition period from last glaciation to interglacial, uh, where we live right now, uh, of uh, climate warmed significantly, more than 10 degrees uh, on average and, and the high latitudes even more. And of course, permafrost reacted accordingly to it. So if you look now in the next time slice, it's about uh, five to uh, 9,000 years ago, which so-called how it's an optimum, so the warmest time during the last 100,000 years, uh, permafrost disappeared pro uh, completely from Europe, uh, a little bit in the European part of Russia, still there. Uh, in uh, Eurasia, oh, I'm sorry, in Asia, in Northern Asia, permafrost still present, but in much uh, smaller uh, area. And this uh, blue is permafrost, which was survived and, and stable during this time. In red, it's permafrost, which already is thawing, and at some places, during this period of time, it thawed pretty deep, down to several tens and sometimes even 100 meters in depth, but it's still present deeper there. So these areas are shown red, and all shelves are thawing permafrost now because sea level got back to almost present-day level, and all this permafrost became subsea permafrost and is thawing, actively thawing because of changes in, in upper boundary conditions. Uh, and of course, uh, that uh, part where these sediments were accumulated in an area where there's no permafrost anymore, uh, permafrost is gone, and most of carbon actually gone also to the atmosphere. Um, 
even in the area, it's very important to know that even in area where permafrost is still stable, during that period of time, it was explosion of local thawing of permafrost in form of so-called thermocarst lakes. And I will show you how it looks like from the uh, space image. So the uh, area which is still very cold permafrost, temperature is still minus 7, minus uh, 10, uh, and permafrost generally is stable. However, uh, locally, uh, permafrost was thawing under this, under this uh, thermocarst lakes, which were developed very rapidly during this period of time, also releasing some part of uh, carbon which was uh, sequestered in the permafrost. So the point is uh, that <coughs> at least partially, well, this is pretty well-known graph where you see the last uh, four cycles, glacial, interglacial cycles. And the middle part is proxy for temperature. Um, it's derived from uh, ice cores in Antarctica. Uh, it proxy for temperature. So present is here. And uh, this is the uh, last glacial, interglacial uh, part. So we are right here in the interglacial. And the upper uh, curve is accordingly uh, changes in CO2 concentration, and lower is uh, methane concentration. So my point is that these changes in permafrost from, uh, in, uh, from glacial time to interglacial, at least partially responsible for release significant amount of uh, carbon in the form of CO2 or methane into the atmosphere during the transition period between uh, glacial and interglacial time. So at least part of it could be explained by changes in dynamics and permafrost. So now what happened after that? Uh, after Holocene Optimum, we uh, experienced cooling again. And uh, uh, the cooling in the uh, climate of course, affected permafrost and new permafrost form, the, the light blue color, new permafrost form in the areas which were freed or partially freed from permafrost during the Holocene Optimum. So this uh, is pretty much uh, present day extent of permafrost. And uh, we see now we have older permafrost here. Uh, we still with the same features with eyes and not everywhere, of course, but some part of this permafrost represents this uh, so-called ice complex with lots of ice and carbon in it. We have new uh, late Holocene permafrost here. And, and finally, uh, the uh, coldest, probably the coldest period of time during the last 10,000 years was Little Ice Age, which uh, happened uh, sometimes uh, uh, several hundred years ago and ended about 200 uh, years ago. Um, and during, during this period of time, even shorter uh, living permafrost was formed, little ice age permafrost, which now is thawing very actively because of warming after end of little ice age. So this uh, permafrost, uh, uh, young permafrost, mostly concentrated in the southern limits of permafrost, and now it's very actively thawing. So uh, if there will be no changes <coughs> in climate, Probably this little ice uh, permafrost will disappear completely, but pretty much we will still stay with this configuration of permafrost. However, uh, data show that this uh, recent warming in the uh, last part of the previous of 20th century and 
projected even more significant warming during the, this century, of course, will have uh, effect on permafrost. <clears throat> so to be uh, aware of what permafrost is doing, we are measuring uh, temperature in the permafrost. So it's the only way to understand uh, and, and kind of track the health of permafrost is measure temperature in it. So we use for that uh, boreholes, uh, some of them as deep as several hundred meters, and we measure temperature every year in many, many uh, areas and uh, looking pretty much like this uh, settings in uh, over uh, many places in Alaska, in uh, Siberia, uh, also in Mongolia, Kazakhstan, uh, our, our uh, colleagues from Canada doing the same thing in Canada. So to really look what permafrost is doing and to be aware of the changes. So what, what do we see? And this is just uh, one small example of two areas. One on the north slope of Alaska and another one is in the um, uh, European north of Russia, uh, north, uh, northeast and west Siberia. Uh, it's, I will show it as an example, but in many, many areas, including Mongolia, from where I just came from, uh, it, the picture is very, very consistent. So we see pretty much the same uh, northern hemispherical feature that temperature in permafrost is increasing uh, lately for the last about 20, 30 years. Increasing temperatures was uh, up to several degrees Celsius. And uh, here, example, a uh, very typical example showing that uh, in some places, permafrost temperature at, at this point, uh, 20 meters depth, uh, increased by almost two degrees, uh, more than two degrees Celsius uh, in, uh, uh, from uh, 60s and 70s to uh, 90s and 2000s. And very similar, uh, very similar dynamics here for, for the European uh, North and Russia. Uh, so also significant increase from 60s and 70s to now. Uh, so a little bit of, of pause of changes now, right now, but uh, we'll see what, what will happen next. Um, so temperature is really increasing. So what, what is about extent or thawing of permafrost? We see thawing, I already mentioned about very extensive thawing of, um, of little ice age permafrost. So now we start to see in many, many areas also that this uh, late Holocene permafrost, older one, is already thawing in many, many places. Uh, what about that old one, this old with ice and, and carbon? Uh, it's pretty much stable still. However, in many areas, and in Alaska in, including, and in central Alaska, we have this kind of depositions, uh, deposits. Uh, temperature at this permafrost is already uh, warmer than minus one degree Celsius. So it's really close to the threshold when it can start to thaw if, if the climate uh, will continue to warm. So there is no way f uh, to permafrost. It could postpone its thawing, it could, but not forever. So it will follow climate like we saw from previous uh, slides that in general and long term, permafrost is following climate. So, and, uh, oops, sorry, wrong direction. And there's a short, uh, uh, resume of the, <clears throat> our measurements are, uh, I practically already mentioned it. So we, we don't see, in many, many sites we measure, we see some of them don't show too much changes, but we don't have any of the point where we see cooling and permafrost on decadal time scale. 
none of them. So their uh, permafrost temperature or increasing or doesn't change. And increase, uh, typical increase is about one to two degrees at 15 meters depth. <clears throat> and uh, it's already thawing like I, I just mentioned. So now to look in the future what, <clears throat> what uh, could happen to permafrost with all these uh, uh, projections in climate change, uh, we use modeling. And we developed some uh, calibrated models uh, uh, which uh, we all pretty confident in. Uh, and of course, uh, we use uh, projections of climate change as input data. So they are not coupled, this model is not coupled uh, so far, but we are working in this direction as well. So we use several different scenarios and look what, what Promoforce was doing. So for uh, this particular example that I will show, I will show three, sli uh, three slides, 2000, 2050, and 2100, uh, projections of, of changes in Promoforce. Uh, we use this moderate scenario, uh, moderate carbon scenario, which is already, uh, it seems like we have to use maybe more aggressive uh, changes in, in climate than than we do uh, so far. But uh, anyway, for this modernized scenario in climate change, permafrost dynamics looks like this. So this is present day distribution and temperature of permafrost. By the uh, uh, colors is really not showing here, but I will explain. Um, so by 2050, this area, this area is supposed to be pink. Well, it's pink on, on the screen of, of my computer. So this area is pink and this area is pink here. So this is thawing permafrost. So by uh, 2050, well, at least 20% uh, of the present day area, mostly in the southern portion of it, of course, will be actively thawing. It means that it will be uh, widespread thawing. It will be thawing everywhere, um, or practically everywhere in, the, in this area. So by 2000, the area of thawing, actively thawing permafrost is increasing almost up to half of the present day distribution of permafrost. So by 2050, uh, in this pink area on my screen, uh, about two to three meters of permafrost will be already gone. Uh, it will be still there, uh, deeper ones, and it'll still be there for many, many years, many hundreds actually of years. Uh, but uh, what is important that most of the carbon like we see uh, concentrated in the upper several meters or s several tens of meters of permafrost, that carbon will be already involved in a, a carbon uh, cycle uh, one way or another. It's another question how it will be involved, but it will be involved, which is uh, not the case right now when it's uh, frozen and doesn't react anyhow on, on climate. Uh, so that's, that's uh, our projection. So it, it's, I would say it's kind of moderate projection of changes in permafrost. Some of the projections shows more, much more a significant loss of permafrost uh, some of them more conservative, but this is, I would say, some kind of uh, you know, intermediate one. So, uh, and, and again, uh, even in the area where permafrost will be still stable, there could be a new wave, new explosion of thermocarst development. Now, thermocarst looks like this. This lake uh, looks from the ground. Um, and uh, this uh, number of, of lakes uh, start to increase sometimes in the, uh, after this Holocene optimum. So this new wave of warming, uh, new lakes can form and new explosion of lakes can, can appear, adding to the, uh, this uh, involvement of carbon, deeper carbon and permafrost uh, to the carbon cycle. So that's, that's one thing. And uh, last thing I would like to spend a little bit of time 
is uh, about this subsea permafrost and gas hydrates thing. Uh, like I said, uh, we uh, know much less about it. Uh, but potentially it could be very important because the amount of carbon in the form of methane uh, concentrated in these gas hydrates is huge. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, any uh, release of this, uh, even a small part of it into the atmosphere can change uh, can add significantly to greenhouse um, effect in, in the atmosphere. So this is uh, data from um, our colleagues from the International uh, Arctic Research Center uh, in Fairbanks, uh, um, Natalia Shachov and Igor Similetov. Uh, they worked uh, measuring methane concentration in uh, seawater. Um, so this is uh, Laptive Sea, East Siberian, East Siberian Sea. So this is a shelf, Arctic shelf uh, of uh, Central and, and East, actually East Siberia. And uh, concentration of methane in the water shown uh, in, in colors. And uh, so the, the equilibrium concentration will be just uh, some units. So what you see this in colors is at least uh, one order, sometimes even more magnitude, larger concentration of methane in water uh, uh, compared to normal equilibrium concentration with uh, atmospheric uh, methane. So huge analysis right now uh, they measured, and it's uh, only data from 2008, but they do these measurements for the last several years, and it's very persistent. They have the same anomalies or the same order of magnitude and pre pretty much in the same places. This is for uh, bottom uh, water, so water concentration of water near to the, to the uh, bottom of the sea. But also they see uh, similar anomalies also at the water close to the, to the surface. So it means that this uh, methane released from, from the bottom somehow uh, actually can reach surface water and can be released into the atmosphere. And there is some uh, kind of uh, possible explanation of sources of this methane is actually decomposition of gas hydrates, which are at the bottom of permafrost on the shelves of present-day shelves, which were formed during the last glaciation or maybe even earlier. But now, because of a long-term thawing for several thousand years of thawing, these uh, gas hydrates could be already decomposing and producing this methane, which uh, reaches uh, at least uh, area at the bottom of the sea and possibly into the atmosphere. Uh, of course, this is not directly related to present day 30 years, uh, 40 years of warming. Uh, it's much longer process. Uh, like I said, it takes uh, many thousands of years to develop. But the point is that this process is already going on for the last several thousand years. And it could be potentially a very important source of additional uh, carbon in form of methane into the atmosphere. That's why we have to uh, you know, be aware of it and, and try to understand and estimate uh, what is the real impact could be uh, from these sources. And uh, the last slide is, well, with all this development and all this uh, positive feedbacks of changing in permafrost and climate, uh, should we expect this uh, significant increase in all these three um, parameters in the near future? And that's it. Thank you very much. Well, I uh, 
it's that time in the program, so if you have a question, what I'd like to ask you to do is come up to this microphone and uh, have your question answered or not, depending on uh, what is known here and what isn't. But uh, anyway, as I look back and reflect on the three talks I heard today, um, it just strikes me that there's a tremendous amount of carbon available for whatever in the Arctic. And whatever being, whatever trajectory climate takes from this point on, and, uh, and uh, how that impacts future estimates of where climate goes, how warm it gets, how it's kind of up for grabs depending on what happens here. So, you know, as many people have said, this is probably, you know, I'd hate to sort of languish over a tired old metaphor, but the canary in the cage. I mean, the Arctic has a lot of things there that could really make this climate in the future quite different than what it is today and, and uh, beyond the projections as well. Uh, there are attempts to build the carbon cycle, including this, into model projections going forward, but that's yet to be fully developed. Anyway, for the purposes of the discussion today, Anybody have any questions for either any of the speakers at all? And if you do, please come up and get in line behind the microphone, and they will answer your questions. Okay. We can get out. Um, thanks so much. Those were great, great presentations. And I do. I have. I have several questions, but I know I can't uh, uh, just take all the time. But uh, one for uh, uh, Dr. Canadell is. Um, Given that CO2 emissions from economic activity are tracking the A1FI fairly closely now, the, the highest rate emission scenario for the IPCC, how accurate is the, um, the storyline of the A1FI? In other words, is it tracking because the A1FI economic parameters, population parameters, et cetera, are similar to what's happening today, uh, carbon intensity? Um, and also one question for uh, Dr. Romanofsky um, is, I, it wasn't clear to me how the pre-Holocene optimum permafrost is looking now. You may, you may have covered it, but I just didn't. I didn't catch it. Um, given that that survived the warming of the the warm of the mid Holocene, are we getting close to seeing some of that degrade now? Thanks. Thanks for that question. Uh, to answer the. The IPCC scenarios were developed for the next 100 years, so the stories are consistent for what's going to happen in 100 years. We're talking about a, a, a decade. So the, the, so the quick answer is yes, but with the caveat that the, the real consistent story is that it was probably a bigger population as well, and what we're seeing here is that we don't know. So globalization was really important, really strong economy, and not much of a decarbonization. That's the story of what? A1FI, of course, with 10 years, you cannot expect all these things happen in many 
different way. So we have a strong globalization of our economy, a really strong economy uh, up to the 2007 that I showed, and we had a really intense, uh, you know, fossil fuel intensive uh, energy system. So yes, that that is the answer of FR1A. So. Um, thank you for the question. And uh, um, so the, the pre-Holocene permafrost, which survived Holocene optimum, is still stable right now. However, in the places uh, which closer to the southern limits of permafrost, like, uh, for example, area in Fairbanks, uh, temperature of this pre-Holocene uh, permafrost is about warmer than minus one degree Celsius. So it, it is still stable. It is so far not thawing and not you know, actively involved in the uh, cycle. However, the temperature is dangerously close to zero degrees Celsius uh, in, uh, in the southern limits. But in the northern limits, we still have very stable permafrost with minus seven, minus eight degrees Celsius. So it's all, of course, the, the whole range of, of the uh, conditions. Uh, first off, thank you all for your presentations. Just excellent. Okay. Uh, the question I had was in relation to poverty and economic development. A lot of countries such as China, India, other developing countries around the world, they're refusing limits on the emissions, as it was explained, because of you know, the economic development involved. Just a, theory, a theoretical question. If someone was to develop a sustainable means of poverty alleviation, similar to, say, microfinance, you know, that could raise potentially 100 million people out of poverty within 10 to 15 years, what would the overall uh, climate impact look like? This is an extremely difficult question because system, we, you know, we need to define what sustainability is. And if sustainability were to be uh, that no climate change um, takes place out of uh, increased uh, ec economics, um, then the answer is that you need to uh, increase the, the, the growth of uh, all these countries with energy systems which do not uh, have uh, CO2 emissions. And I think that what, what the fundamental point here is that developed world, or let's say, you know, the rich world has even a greater responsibility, as I see it now, to uh, support the development, which is uh, uh, something that w I think that we must do uh, to get people out of poverty, but just with a commitment to really offer the technology that can actually take those countries and that increase in energy with, with, with a, without a, a CO2 consequence. It, you ask an extremely difficult question. We don't know what sustainability is actually, but I, I understand where you're coming from, and yes, you just, we just need to basically develop energy systems which do not pump all this amount of carbon into the atmosphere. I'm John McCormick with the Energy Policy Center. And my comment is directed to either Dr. Romanowski or uh, Dr. Pep. Um, I I'm wanting you to discuss methane sinks. We've seen an increase in methane 
of the past several years where earlier we were seeing a decrease. The predominant uh, removal of methane from the troposphere is reaction with the uh, hydroxyl radical. But OH also reacts with uh, volatile organic compounds, carbon monoxide, uh, I guess nitrogen oxide as well. So this scavenger of the atmosphere is being called upon now to uh, transform methane into what? Carbon dioxide. But it also transforms methane into carbon monoxide, which then causes the... So are we beginning to see the increase in methane because we're beginning to see a decrease in the hydroxyl radical? Now, if that is possibly the case and the OH compound has reached a tipping point, there are other means to in enhance the methane sink, perhaps in the, the oceans. We're... Uh, Chlorine reacting with methane becomes methyl chloride. Uh, and I've seen just a few papers being discussed about trying to enhance the uptake of methane in the Earth's uh, what, uh, marine uh, boundary layer. Uh, is, is this something that the geoengineering discussion should really begin to focus on because it would be such a big hit to reduce the amount of methane in the atmosphere? I'll respond, but probably not everything you wanted to know. But uh, the first of all, methane has actually been stable globally uh, since 2000, and it has picked up just very recently. Uh, actually, it's just a little bit, you know, what's really going on. And and I think that we still we still don't know even. There's a number of hypotheses about why it's stabilized, and you know we think that industry, you know, really uh, either flared the methane and went into CO2, or really used that methane that was released before because now you know you can make a lot of money out of it. Um, there's also issues of uh, drying wetlands uh, in a lot of parts of Asia and has been also shown. So until we don't really fully understand what's really causing this uh, flattening and now picking up again, it is difficult to really think about um, you know, what's really the, the causes and what we can do. Now, you were asking, you were suggesting a way to actually scrap uh, methane, and I think that probably I cannot answer more than what I just said. Nevertheless, if we find a way to scrap methane, of course, this is uh, given the fact that it's such a full, powerful, uh, ready forcing uh, gas, that would be a terrific uh, thing. Uh, Chester Joy, The Climate Project. I wondered, what, what do you think may be the most telling research or, or reporting uh, findings pertinent to your presentations that, that you are anticipating over the next year or two, uh, and why? Thank you. Well, from the uh, perspective of the, of the presentation that I gave, I think that um, Reducing the uncertainties in terms of what will happen to soil organic carbon is probably crucial, or carbon in general is probably crucial. We have uh, ideas of the, we, we know the processes that sequester carbon and many of the processes that release carbon. And these are small, so these are small fluxes relative to the to giant 
pools, to large pools. So, so very small changes can have very large effects. So I think that, um, that quantifying these fluxes and how they balance each other out is, is going to be crucial to understanding whether atmospheric carbon dioxide is going to in, continue to increase and how fast or whether it will, uh, whether um, biological or uh, uh, geophysical processes will sequester carbon dioxide. So we're talking about, you know, small fluxes that are acting on, on very large, on very large pools. So how will, how does vegetation respond? to uh, increasing temperatures, to increasing carbon dioxide, how do soil, how do the uh, soil moisture conditions respond to those? Um, how do microbial decomposers respond? Um, lots of unknowns all acting on these, uh, on these different pools. I think that's going to be crucial. If I, if I could clarify, I think by yeah. that answer for your presentation, what I meant was what specific efforts are underway or reporting efforts or research efforts to answer those questions that you are awaiting the results of and that we should be. Oh, um, well, um, I can only, I can answer some of the, uh, um, what some of the agencies have been you know, have been have been looking at. We are just uh, in terms of the the Arctic. We're just finishing with the IPY, the International Polar Year. So, uh, funding for Arctic research has been uh, quite good over the past few years. Um, it will probably uh, see a little, a bit of a a bit of a slowdown. Um, what you've actually you, what we've actually presented here are probably a lot of the outcomes of of the of some important studies from the IPY. I, you want to know where we're going forward. Um, I, I know that there is an effort to um, look at observatory networks, okay, and the Arctic is one of the key areas where uh, these uh, observatory networks might, might be implemented. There is uh, um, a uh, program called the Arctic Observatory Network, and the idea would be to implement a, a set of sites that can be monitored over over long periods of time. So, uh, some of the research that, that we have shown you, the, the, the sites are very difficult to get to and very difficult to work at. And the issue is, can we, do we have the, the, the funding to, to go there and work there and look at the changes in these places over, over time? And there are efforts to, um, at least to begin those, uh, that monitoring. Did you have uh, something you want to say, Vladimir? Yeah, well, well I, I, while you're saying it, uh, you studied both historical and modern changes in permafrost and this relationship between permafrost and temperature. But based on that historical context, what do you anticipate going forward in the future based on what you've seen the evidence of the past to be? Yeah, well, I think one of the <clears throat> important uh, area to watch is exactly this uh, ancient permafrost which survived Hartzian Optimum and now is uh, still stable but barely. So I think that will be very crucial for, uh, in terms of uh, this uh, topic we discussed today about uh, release of carbon. 
Um, in terms of uh, other uh, uh, relation between changes in permafrost and, say, uh, infrastructure, for example, uh, we have to uh, also uh, devote our attention to places where people live and how permafrost changes will affect the, their, their lives. Uh, it's, it's another topic. And we tried to develop, and actually we were successful so far, to develop this uh, 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 Arctic uh, uh, observatory for permafrost uh, uh, monitoring. Uh, how it will be in the future, it depends on funding again. So, so far we were lucky because of this polar bear, like uh, how we mentioned, uh, what will be in the, in, in the future, uh, well, we'll see. Uh, however, we definitely need to continue our uh, uh, measurements efforts uh, into the future at many diverse uh, locations, and especially with the uh, point that there is some very sensitive, uh, I think I'm making, uh, very sensitive areas uh, where changes in permafrost will actually produce uh, the most impact. So we have to concentrate on that. And in the second, I would like to say that there is some. Uh, uh, there are some developments right now to include permafrost as a uh, part in the global uh, climate models. So that's another area where uh, we should uh, continue to work very actively with our colleagues from uh, uh, modeling side and uh, try to develop this coupled model where changes in permafrost will uh, feed back to climate. So this is very important. Without that, uh, all climate models will be not, you know, uh, good enough to predict what will happen. Just very quickly, I'll, I'll just add that for us it's really important to really try to understand a little better these uh, dynamics of the future carbon sink, um, this thing that it is removing half of our pollution. And so we've been working on this issue for forever and somehow we're just doing um, small progress on it. So we're developing a new assessment to actually do carbon balances at the regional level. It's called RECAP. And we're just now talking to people about it. And we hope that by pushing a lot this regional component, we can actually enrich uh, our process understanding of these things and therefore have a better mechanistic understanding of where they may go into the future. We think this as, as a really crucial thing. And of course, the permafrost is, is related too. We're talking about the net, the net, the, the strength of the net sinks, which is the balance of source and sink. Thanks. My name is Janine Sienna. I'm a budget analyst at NOAA up in Silver Spring. My question is actually for Dr. Canada. You mentioned that um, about 50% of the current emissions up in the atmosphere are being taken down by land and ocean sinks. I was just wondering what your academic opinion was on efforts to like iron fertilization in the oceans, how the effect of those type of mitigation strategies might be in the future. Actually, the GCP took a position on iron fertilization, and we believe that is a really bad idea. So we, we're not doing anything about it. We thought that there are just too many things which would change along in terms of biological processes and traffic chains that we're not able to really try to predict. And we think that as a mitigation option, we, we certainly don't want to go there, so we haven't done much. Thank you. Uh, 
Hi, thanks again for your presentations. My name is Eric Webster with the ITT Corporation. You mentioned the Arctic Observatory networks and how you're measuring and monitoring permafrost. But are there ways through technology to monitor CO2 and methane in these areas, or are you just monitoring the biological and the, the temperature aspects of it? Thank you. Um, yeah, there are there are ways of of, of monitoring uh, carbon dioxide um, concentrations and and methane concentrations. Uh, one, uh, it, it's uh, a little bit more easier to measure. Um, carbon dioxide concentrations. We use infrared gas analyzers and um, they come in a variety of different, uh, different, different forms, different um, manufacturers. Um, but uh, you can use uh, infrared gas analyzers to monitor um, carbon dioxide concentrations in soils, which, uh, which many uh, researchers have done. And so you can look at uh, different levels in the soil for carbon dioxide concentrations. And with those, with that information, you get an idea of how much carbon dioxide is being produced by the soils. Um, and with some other calculations, you can uh, estimate the carbon dioxide that is being emitted from soils. When you're looking at soils, you have the issue uh, that um, carbon dioxide is being produced. But what comes at the top is also limited by the transport of carbon dioxide and whether you have a wet soil or whether you have a, a dry soil. You also can, um, there are infrared gas analyzers that are connected to chambers of different sizes and shapes and you can put a chamber over a soil and you can measure how rapidly the carbon dioxide concentrations increase in that chamber and you can get an idea of what the flux of carbon dioxide is. Um, from the ground, you can put a uh, 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 lucent chamber over a whole system in the tundra. It's easy because your system is short, so you can put these uh, chambers out and measure the carbon dioxide concentrations either accumulating or um, decreasing in your chamber. And that tells you whether your whole system is uh, a sink for carbon dioxide or, um, or a source for carbon dioxide, I think that the um, the uh, there are also you know ways of of, of measuring methane. I think though we'll see more with um, technologies for measuring measuring methane um, in the in the field in situ. There are all, there are ways where you can collect gas samples and bring them back to your lab to measure to measure um, methane. Hi, my name is Judy Bogus, and I'm asking my question as a citizen. I'm wondering, you've alluded to this in a couple of ways, but what do you feel, and this is for all three of you, are the most promising engineering innovations to either mitigate or even capture the productive potential of this phenomena? Thanks. Um, I think everyone agrees that we will resolve, will resolve climate change or will address climate change by really putting in place a, a portfolio of mitigation options. There's no bullet, you know, golden bullet that, that's going to take us out there. What, what is really nice to see is that, for instance, both um, uh, wind, wind generation of electricity and uh, 
uh, solar thermal, you know, in, in big power plants. It is available now, and it's actually the wind extremely competitive. So we see like these two things growing dramatically, you know, very quickly and helping a lot. But I want to insist that we're looking at really a portfolio of options, which is going to, the, the, the texture of this portfolio is going to be different depending on the regions. I come from Australia, and we have a huge potential for both for wind and, and solar. We're exploiting wind dramatically. We're barely exploiting solar. And I think that there is a, a great opportunity. Hi, my name is Hope Williamson, and I'm a college student. Um, I guess my question is mostly for you, Dr. Kendall. Um, about the efficiency of wind and solar energy. How efficient is that really? How much land space would it take up to have a sufficient enough source? And how does that compare to nuclear energy? Should we be focusing more on that than we are? Uh, we argue that most of the, uh, many countries have certainly plenty of space to put uh, solar panels and to put um, uh, wind uh, mills to actually do it. So it's not an issue of whether we don't have the, the resource or the, the space to, to do it. On the nuclear, I think that that's for society to decide whether we want to move that route or not. I mean, it, it is a, a great clean uh, energy. It's expensive, but it, it is clean. And I think that it is not for politicians or bureaucrats or scientists to really you know, dictate or uh, suggest whether we should go that route or not. This is really, you know, a society decision as to whether we want to engage into what nuclear entitles, both positive and negative. Frankel from GAO. Dr. Romanovsky, you showed um, areas of permafrost, I think you called it Holocene, some large areas in orange, and then later, light blue little ice age um, areas. Does that imply that they're, in effect, stacked on top of each other? And is there, is it continuous permafrost, or is there uh, unfrozen ground between them? Yeah, you, <clears throat> you're exactly uh, right. It is. Um, very interesting situation in a, a very big part of West Siberia, and not only there, where we have recent permafrost, uh, about 50 to 70 meters from the top uh, you know, uh, surface down to uh, 50, 70 meters. Then there is no permafrost uh, for maybe 100 meters. And then another layer of 100 to 150 meters uh, old uh, permafrost from the uh, last glaciation. So that's, that's exactly a, a picture for huge area in, in West Siberia. That, that's right. Well, I want to uh, thank our folks. But before I do, I just wanted to sort of share a little thought or an anecdote that I've been sort of carrying in my mind. I mean, the, the economic thing that's going on has been in all of our minds and it just struck me that you know, there's a big difference between trying to sort of mop up you know uh, large events that happen as opposed to sort of 
being on the front end of it before the mop-up has to take place, and so uh, even in terms of money. And so I take that as a lesson personally that we have opportunities uh, coming down the road, and uh, you know we got some examples about what you know what that mop-up looks like when we drive the train into the wall. And so uh, you know these are the kinds of choices we're all you know saddled with and faced with coming up. It's not a prescription as to what to do, but to say that anticipation probably is a lot cheaper than train wrecks. Anyway, let me close on that, and thank you, folks, for coming.